Um, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, as we continue our teaching series, Future Church, each week we are looking at a challenge that we are facing in our cultural moment, and then at Jesus' vision of the church as an alternative society to the cultural norms that are all around us, and then at a practice from our rule of life to index us away from what the New Testament writers call the world and toward Jesus' life in the kingdom. Up on the docket for today is a community of peace in a culture of outrage and fear. Stand with me for the reading of scripture. Luke chapter five, verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we open our heart and all that we are, the deep place in us, to you. May listening to this teaching from the text that we just read and more be an act of yielding in our inner woman or inner man to the will and the love of God. As we said last week, may our bodies at an individual level and our body at a church level become the place, the temple, the place of God's presence and his peace, the place where your will is done in our bodies and our body as it is in heaven. Do more of that work today. Let us gain serious ground in surrender and yielding to your love. Let obedience become a word that we grow to love and find safety and joy in. Amen. Take a seat. Let me introduce you to Arsenius the Great, fourth century desert father. He was born in 350 to privilege. His father was a Roman senator. He became the tutor to the royal family and educated Caesar himself. But then, later in life, he became a follower of Jesus. He gave away every single penny of his wealth. 
He gave up his job and his home in the palace itself. And he moved to the deserts of North Africa just to pray. He was one of, we don't have an exact number, but best guesstimate is hundreds of thousands of men and of women who we now call the Desert Fathers and Mothers, who gave us the legacy that here we are in thousands of years later that we call the contemplative tradition. Of course, they did not call it the contemplative tradition. To them and to many others, it was just the way that serious followers of Jesus around that time were practicing the way of Jesus, and in particular were praying. When Emperor Constantine was, quote, converted, whether it's dubious or not, and legalized the Christian faith, for the first time in the fourth century, the way moved from a persecuted minority to a political majority, and it caused all sorts of problems for the integrity of the church. It became enmeshed with the empire, and all sorts of evil was done by the empire, now with a thin veneer of Christian backing. In an act of prophetic witness, Arsenius and hundreds of thousands of others literally fled the empire for the desert. Years later, when he was an elderly man, he lived over a hundred years, became a man who was literally famous around the Mediterranean world for his wisdom, but also his warmth, his compassion, his deep, what the ancients called stabilitas, the sense of nothing could move you, and above all, his love. He was asked, why did you give everything up? Like, you did not have to do that as a follower of Jesus. Why did you give up your life? I mean, literally, your home was in the palace. And he said that one day he was praying when he was a new Christian, and he said to God, Lord, lead me in the way of salvation. And he felt the voice of God say back to him in his mind, Arsenius, flee, be silent, and pray always. For these are the sources of sinlessness. We live in a world of noise. Robert Seurat, the Catholic cardinal from Guinea, and his stunning book, The Power of Silence, which I think is in my top 10 favorite books of all time, writes this. Modern society can no longer do without the dictatorship of noise. It lulls us in an illusion of cheap democracy while snatching our freedom away with subtle violence of the devil, that father of lies. Without noise, postmodern man falls into a dull, insistent uneasiness. He is accustomed to permanent background noise which sickens yet reassures him. Noise gives him security like a drug on which he has become dependent. With its festive appearance, noise is a whirlwind that avoids facing itself. Agitation becomes a tranquilizer, a sedative, a morphine pump, but noise is a dangerous, deceptive medicine. A diabolical lie that helps man avoid confronting himself in his interior emptiness. The awakening will necessarily be brutal. Good morning, by the way. It's great to see you. On one hand, you know, this is nothing new, the proliferation of noise in the world. To prep for this teaching, I reread Henry Nouwen's The Way of the Heart, and he writes about driving across LA in the late 70s and how every surface was covered with a billboard or advertising. He said it felt like driving through a dictionary. Quote, everywhere I looked, there were words trying to take my eyes from the road. They said, use me, take me, buy me, drink me, smell me, touch me, kiss me, sleep with me. And he said, words then become little to no meaning. 
He said noise is the great threat to our spiritual life in the modern world, and his book was published in 1981. Since then, the noise of modern culture has ramped up to a fever pitch due to the rise of the iPhone and the internet. You all know the stats. The average iPhone user touches their phone 2,516 times a day. The average person is on their phone three hours and 15 minutes a day. That number is nearly twice that for millennials and Gen Z. Some of the most brilliant minds of our generation, just a few hours south of here, are working insane hours to create technology that is literally designed to distract us and addict us and then to monetize our attention and sell behavior modification to advertisers. The billboards are now inside our own neuroplasticity. And the data is in. Not only is the digital age, and specifically social media, making us miserable, it is making us worse people. It's well, well, well documented, you all know this, that the more time you spend on social media, the more anxious you are, and the more depressed you are. Here is the new finding based on the most recent research and data. Also, the meaner you become. Uh, if you want a good summary, read someone like Jerome Lanier in his book, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now, best title ever. I'm shocked at how vicious people, including people who claim to be Christians, are online. The level of contempt, of moral superiority, the lack of thick and intelligent, nuanced thinking for that matter, the nitpicking at words, the shaming, the trolling, it is nasty out there. Of course, internet meanness is symptomatic of a much larger cultural trend. We live in a culture of outrage. Everybody is mad at somebody about something. It's just a question of what. Now, of course, to clarify, I'm not saying that anger isn't legitimate. There is great evil and injustice in our world. Anger is your body's natural response to not getting what it thinks and feels it needs. That can be a very good thing, but it is easily contorted by our flesh and corrupted by the devil himself. Jesus warned over and over again in his teachings of the danger of anger. He said, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, you idiot or you fool, is answerable to the court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus saw that there was a place for the right kind of anger, which he put on display in the temple story with the Pharisees, but that much of our anger is not, in all honesty, a righteous anger, even if we pretend like it is. It's rooted in contempt, where we look down our nose, not, a, not at a person's behavior, but at a person themselves, and in pride, we elevate ourselves to a superior moral position, that great human sin. And Jesus said that even speaking to others in a demeaning way could lead us to hell. Jesus' brother, James, warned us a very similar thing. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Notice the tenderness in his voice. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because human anger, note the distinguishing there, does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth, which in context is anger, and the evil that is so prevalent, it's all around us, and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Shift your posture from speaking in anger to listening in humility. 
if there ever was a verse for our moment. Uh, this last week, I read Howard Thurman, who, if you're not familiar with him, was an African-American intellectual and strong Christian in the middle of the last century. He wrote this book, Jesus and the Disinherited, which apparently MLK used to carry around on his person. And for years, a number of my um, pastor of color friends have said, this is the book you should read. And I just finally got around to reading this particular one. And it was stunning. Written in 1949, right, like the heart of Jim Crow. And in his chapter on hate, he writes about how all of us, all of us, live with at least some level of hate under the surface of our hearts. But great social movements, and he uses the example of World War II, which was then fresh in everyone's mind, often give us an excuse to justify our hate and call what is evil good, to reframe our outrage as virtue rather than as vice. What's behind the outrage of our day on both the left and the right? What if actually it's pain? James Baldwin, that civil rights activist and partner to MLK, once said this, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. And none of us want to deal with pain. Behind every rant on social media or sporadic eruption of road rage, back when we used to drive places, and office outburst is a staggering amount of pain. And not just pain, but more specifically, a body of fear. All sorts of fears. Fear of the future, fear of the past, fear over our lack of control, fear over how much control we have, fear for our nation, fear of the other, fear of what other people think of us, fear that if people actually knew who we are, who we actually are, if we were to actually face the reality of who we actually are, we would find nothing but shame and rejection. Fear is the most primal survival instinct in our body, designed by God to maintain our life, but in a world that is suffering under the curse of sin and the rule of Satan, our bodies become overcome by fear, and fear becomes not a servant but a master. We become enslaved to our fears, run by them, and they sabotage our deepest desires to become people of love. After all, the New Testament is clear. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love, end quote. Years ago on my last sabbatical, God began to reveal to me through therapy and reading the Emotionally Healthy Church and a few other things that I have a major problem with anger. Um, which now is like saying, I have blue eyes, like it's so obvious. But at the time, my level of self-delusion was very high, and um, I was blind to it, because my anger isn't like a punch a hole in the wall, I would just break my finger, um, kind of anger. I'm not that kind of a guy, it's a seething resentment kind of under the surface that, that comes out in a, a sarcastic dig or a constant annoyance. And now, as I'm kind of moving toward my next sabbatical, God willing, not that far away, God is already starting to reveal to me just how much fear is in my body. COVID-19 and all things 2020 expose just how in bondage I still am to fear. And as long as my body is enslaved to fear and to anger, I negate love. I block the flow of the love of God through me to the world. 
And this is where the way of Jesus has so much to offer all of us, myself included. Jesus' most repeated command, scholars argue, is do not fear. In fact, scholars argue it's the most repeated command in all of Scripture. Jesus said things like, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, not a derogatory term in the New Testament, run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first his kingdom, his righteousness. These other things will be given to you as well. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. And I love Jesus' sense of humor here. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You can chuckle at that. Or in Matthew 24, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed, you're not upset, you're not thrown off, you're not made anxious. Such things will happen. That is the state of the world. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, earthquakes, global pandemics in various... I threw that one in. It's not there. But in various places... All these are just the beginning of birth pangs. Don't be alarmed. Stay at an anchor. Or, of course, in John, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Is it any wonder that almost every single letter in the New Testament starts with grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? Or that Paul calls God the Father, the God of peace, and Jesus the Prince of Peace? Or that the New Testament's concept of atonement central to it is the idea that Jesus has made peace on the cross, between us and God, between various ethnic groups that were at odds with each other, between interpersonal relationships, even with the powers of the universe. Peace is at the center of Jesus' vision of life in the kingdom. And the vision of Jesus and the New Testament writers is of the church as a community of peace in a culture of outrage and fear, which again is as old as the human condition a community that functions as what Edwin Friedman called a non-anxious presence. People who are, in Jesus' language, not alarmed by global pandemics or political holy wars or social unrest or the loss of a job or you fill in a blank, but who are anchored in the peace and the presence of Jesus. Now, of course, the question is how? How do we keep from getting sucked into the black hole of outrage and fear? Is there a practice from the way of Jesus to index us away from outrage and fear and toward peace and with it love? Yes, of course, there are many, but at the top of my list is the practice of silence and solitude. Note again Luke 5, if your Bible is open in your lap. Verse 15, the news about Jesus spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. The phrase lonely places is one word in Greek. It's the word eremos. It can be translated the lonely place or the quiet place or the solitary place or the wilderness, or the desert. It's the place where all the accruements of modern life are stripped away 
and all of our attachments are exposed. By attachments, I just mean all of the things we think we need to feel safe and happy and okay. What Calvinists call our idols, those things at the deep core of our being. It's the place where our soul, as it actually is, is laid bare before the loving gaze of God. And the Eremos was a core practice in Jesus' rule of life. Listen to a few other translations of the Greek. Jesus himself frequently withdrew to the wilderness and prayed. Jesus often slipped away to be alone so he could pray. As often as possible, Jesus withdrew to out-of-the-way places for prayer. The Eremos was like the downbeat in Jesus' life rhythm that he would come back to again and again and again. It was the foundation for his entire spiritual life. And following Jesus into the Eremos is a practice that has come to be called silence and solitude. Last week, we covered the New Testament theology of the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we said that fasting is how we sanctify, in a sense, the temple and we create space. We drive out kind of all the other stuff from the temple of our body and we create space for God. Silence and solitude is how we move deeper into that temple in the imagery of the Old Testament, into the Holy of Holies. As my friend Dave Lomas, who is, we're co-teaching this series together, put it, It's about creating the emotional and spiritual space which allows Christ to build in us an inner sanctuary where we can commune with God, unite with God's will, and enjoy his presence. Imagine your favorite place to pray or rest or just process your life with God Uh, It could be here at church, or it could be in your living room early in the morning with a cup of coffee in your favorite mug, or for me, it's afternoon walks in Forest Park on a sunny day. The goal of silence and solitude is to let Jesus build a place like that inside of you, in your inner woman or man, a place that you carry around with you everywhere you go. And no matter where your body is or no matter what the external environment is, a place you can always retreat to and rest in Jesus' peace and presence right in the chaos of life. This is what Jesus was getting at in John 15 with his famous command to abide in me. Abide is the verb form of the noun abode, Think of like abode as in a home or a dwelling place. In Greek, it's the word meno. It means to make your home in God and let God make his home in you. Or another way to translate that is to come to rest in God and let God come to rest in you. To fashion your inner life into a holy temple for the Holy Spirit to dwell. Now, this sounds great. Like as I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm like, man, yes, sign me up. But I hear my Old Testament professor from my seminary days in the back of my mind, he used to say, if you're familiar at all with um, the reading of Genesis 1, that would argue it's cosmic temple imagery. He used to say that, that Eden is created in a war zone, meaning his interpretation of Genesis 1 and 2 is that there are what we would call demonic beings at war with God before Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, and that whatever is happening in, in Genesis 1, God is, is creating a place for humans to live with God right in the middle of a spiritual war. 
The same is true for our inner temple. This inner temple, this inner sanctuary is created in the middle of a war zone. Silence and solitude, do not get me wrong, is the most radical and the most misunderstood of all of the practices or spiritual disciplines. It's the most radical. Robert Mulholland said it this way in Invitation to a Journey. The practice of silence is the radical reversal of our cultural tendencies. Silence is bringing ourselves to a point of relinquishing to God our control of our relationship with God. Silence is a reversal of the whole possessing, controlling, grasping dynamic of trying to maintain control of our own existence. Silence is the inner act of letting go. That is radical. That is against everything we hear in our culture. It's also the most misunderstood. For a lot of people, and in particular for us introverts, come on, Silence and solitude is a chance to like get a little me time in, you know, to like recharge your batteries if that's reading poetry or folding laundry or whatever your thing is and kind of just do what you want to do and call it like a spiritual discipline. Now, that's not all bad, but for introverts, this turns silence and solitude into a spiritual justification for narcissism rather than a spiritual discipline to become a person of love. At some point, as a husband, as a father, as a friend, going away is no longer an act of becoming a person of love. It's an act of loving myself. And for extroverts, this turns silence and solitude into an optional extra that is based on felt need, which they don't have. So it's like, I'm good. I don't need that. Let's go out for more. But this vision of silence and solitude as downtime for introverts is not the silence and solitude of Jesus in the desert or Paul in Arabia, or Arsenius in Egypt. In fact, for the desert fathers and mothers, and I've been reading them a lot over the last few years, their go-to text, their paradigmatic scripture for silence and solitude was not John 15 and abide in me. It was Luke 4, quote, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, or the Aremos, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. Many of us are shocked when we go into quiet and we expect to just bask in God's peace and instead, Satan is there. Instead, all, seriously, all of our, you're like, is that like symbolic or just stay with me. Instead, all of our fears and our angers come to the surface. Do you ever like go away to pray and all you're doing is thinking about what your boss said to you like three weeks ago on a Thursday afternoon, the uh, word you can't say in prayer or anywhere, by the way. Um, <laughs> or all of your fears and all of your anxiety over what about this, what about that, what if so-and-so, what if this happens, what if this doesn't happen, all of it is just there and obsessive thoughts begin to dominate your mind and ruminate your consciousness and often you even feel like a demonic pushback on your soul. That's because the Eremos is the place of encounter. With God, yes, but also with the devil and with the reality of our life. Because most of us just as T.S. Eliot said so well, human being, humankind can bear very little reality. Nowen said it so well, solitude is not a private therapeutic place. Rather, it is the place of conversion, the place where the old self dies and the new self is born, the place where the emergence of the new man and the new woman occurs. Solitude is the furnace of transformation. Without solitude, we remain victims of our society and continue to be entangled in the illusion of the false self. 
Solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter, the struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. It's the furnace of transformation. It's the place where we are set free by God from our attachments, from our deepest fears, what we think we need, and which is the fuel for our anger and even our hate. Without it, without quiet, we remain in slavery to our fears and to the worst part of our flesh. As Thomas Merton, a friend and contemporary of Nouwen, said, without silence and solitude, we will have nothing to give others. We will communicate to them nothing but the contagion of our own obsessions, aggressiveness, ego-centered ambitions, and delusions. When we use noise to drown out noise, we are dealing with the symptom and not the disease, not the root problem. The path of transformation is learning how to be with our pain, anger, and deepest fears, and let God be with us so that new life can emerge in and through us, so that we can become a non-anxious presence, women and men of peace who are anchored in Jesus, who are not alarmed, and who in a culture of outrage and so much fear, and an entire digital industry built to prey on our fear, we can offer the gift of peace. Our practice for the week is all up at bridgetown.church future. The baseline practice that we invite you to work toward in your rule of life, of course it's up to you, is to spend time each day. I mean, our dream would be 365 days a year. Ideally, first thing in the morning, and ideally before you touch your phone, in quiet prayer. The more the better, but if all you can squeeze in is 10 minutes, great, start there. Now before we end, for those of you who are new to the practice, I don't wanna just like send you out to fight Satan all by yourself, all right? So just give me a few more minutes. Let me sketch out five basic movements to silence and solitude. Now, disclaimer here, they are not linear. I will make them sound linear. They are not five steps. They're more like five aspects of life in the quiet, nor is this a technique to control your prayer life. It's more like five ways to let go of control. They are relax, detach, look, listen, and love. Short word on each. One, relax. Ronald Rollheiser defined prayer as relaxing into God's goodness. Is that how you think about prayer? Is that how you think about your morning? What are you doing? I'm just relaxing into God's goodness. We live so much of our days from our body's kind of flight or fight reflex, running from thing to thing on a hype of adrenaline and caffeine until we collapse and our system goes down and we just watch Netflix with a bleary eye into the night. The first task of prayer is just to calm down and to let your mind and your body settle into God's presence, to let your nervous system draw on the Spirit's peace. There's no right way to do this. Most of us start by reading scripture slowly and in a prayerful spirit, uh, most of the time a psalm or a selection from the gospels. Then a lot of us will just attend to our breath, just kind of slow our breathing down and kind of just let our attention come to rest on each breath in 
and each breath out. Then we attend to the moment and just attempt to be here, not now, not in the past, not in the future, but here because God is always only here. And then finally, we attend kind of through scripture, through our body, through our breathing, through the moment we come to attend to God. We realize the truth of the psalmist's words, I am always with you. And of Jesus' last words, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And we just be with God. The most common way to do this in the contemplative tradition, like the most basic form of contemplative prayer, is just the prayer word united to the breath, meaning you just pick a word. There's no right word. There's no magic word. It's not an incantation. It can be Jesus or Father, or peace. The most famous one is called the Jesus Prayer. It's Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Mine, I I use one, a line right now from Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And you just begin to breathe. Any of you familiar with mindfulness? Um, It's kind of like that, but relational. The goal is not to clear your mind. The goal is to commune with God. And so you just begin to kind of repeat that prayer word and unite it to your breath. And the thought there is, um, there's nothing magical about that. It's that God is not a thought or even a feeling or an image that we are to grasp. God is God. And so at some point we have to move beyond praying with thoughts and feelings and even with words to commune with God. But the problem is you have a mind. You have this prefrontal cortex and it's a great gift from God. It's really good at writing emails or scheduling what to do next Thursday afternoon, or booking an Airbnb for vacation in faith that we will have one this summer. It's really bad at deep communion with God. It tends in that space just to get in the way. And so what the contemplatives have said for almost 2,000 years is, well, if your mind's a problem, just give it something to do. Let it just focus on a prayer word and focus on your breath so that a deeper part of you the part of you that sees your thoughts and your feelings coming in and out of your field of vision, that that deeper part of you that we can't even name very well, that part of you can commune with God. Movement two is to detach. Detachment in the way of Jesus is very different from detachment in the Buddhist tradition or Eastern religions where the goal is to detach from all desire. For us as followers of Jesus, it's a way to detach from our surface level desires in order to attach to our deepest desire, that of union with God. Again, Robert Mulholland, a favorite of mine, defines detachment as a deep inner posture of joyful release of our life and our being to God in absolute trust, without demands, without conditions, without reservations. It is neither a passive resignation nor a fatalistic acquiescence to whatever comes. It is rather a consistent posture of actively turning our whole being to God so that God's presence, purpose, and power can be released through our lives into all situations. So much of our prayer life is about coming to that place of inner freedom through the release of self-will. I would go so far as to say in your morning quiet time of prayer, don't get up off of your couch, don't go about your day, don't pick up your phone until you have come to this place of inner release of self-will. 
opening to the circumstances of our lives, be they good or bad, wanted or unwanted, just whatever they happen to be, letting go of our futile grasping for control, which is the root of our trouble. Pete Scazzaro said it this way recently, our core spiritual problem is self-will. Then he said, we all want a spiritual life, but we prefer to be in charge of it and have it unfold according to our schedule and in our way. Gosh, that's a little too close to home, Pete. In prayer, we release all of that over to God. Whether you call this detachment, others call it yielding, St. Ignatius called it indifference, the church tradition that I came up in called it surrender, or death to self, or the crucified life. Different words, same idea. It's Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. We detach, then we look. This is the heart of prayer. And again, I'm all for asking God for things, but, but this is the heart of prayer. Looking at God, looking at you in love. The ancients called this beholding and becoming. They said spiritual formation at its most basic is you behold God and as a result you become like God. They would read Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory. This is where the language of contemplative prayer comes from in scripture are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. As Hui Hui Tan from Hong Kong put it, you become like what you contemplate. Whether you contemplate Jesus, or the op-ed page of the New York Times, or Fox News, or Netflix, or pornography, or your stock market, stats for the day, you fill in the blank. What you give your mind over to, your attention to, what you let fill, literally your nervous system at a neurobiological level, will determine and shape and forge who you do or do not become. As we contemplate Christ, as we spend just large portions of our life looking at Jesus, looking at us in love, We are transformed little by little. There's no magic bullet. It's not like you do it for three days and by Thursday you're like a saint, you know. Over years, over decades of prayer, we are transformed into people of love. Then number four, we listen. It's been said that the primary posture of a disciple of Jesus is sitting at his feet and listening. This is Samuel's famous, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That is the heart we're after. But Samuel is a prophet, you may think. Yes, but under the new covenant, paid for by Jesus' own blood on the cross, we now have direct access to the Father through Jesus and by the Spirit. We have the same access to God's voice that Samuel had and that Jesus himself had. Jesus who said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me and I am in you. Figure that one out. And God also has direct access to our deepest self. He can implant words, scriptures, truths, 
images, feelings, and desires into our mind, into our imagination, into our body itself because it's his temple. It's the locus point. It's his home. He's there. This is why most of us don't hear the audible voice of God. I do, but only every third day or so. Um, but it's why most, that's, I'm kidding, come on, I wish. Because honestly, there's no need. What is speech? This is going to sound a little Orwellian, but speech is an ability to guide, or you could even argue, control another person's thought life. Right now, I am controlling what you are thinking about. What you are thinking about is the word, what you are thinking about. All right, I'm speaking, and your mind is following the grooves laid down by the words coming out of my mouth. Spirit of God does not need to give us an audible voice because he can speak right into our mind. He can guide our mind into his truth. Jesus said this, the Holy Spirit will guide you into truth. Now, our thoughts are a mixed bag of God and us and what we read in the news that morning and our grandma and a thousand other things. (laughs) Hence the practice of discernment. Much could be said about that. All I'm saying is God has direct access to your mind. And while I have a very high view of scripture as special and unique and I, we have to interpret prayer, of course, in a different way, I very much believe that the same spirit is still alive and at work in me, that God is still speaking in all of us, in the deep core of our being. And our job is just to wait on him in his presence in a posture of listening. Finally, we love The essence and the end goal of the entire spiritual journey is love. It's been said by a number of thinkers I love that you can summarize the entire spiritual journey as the journey from fear to love. That's what it's always about. Letting go of our attachments that are the root of our fear and as a result the root of our anger and our sin and our cruelty in the world and as a result becoming free and becoming people of love. And we follow Jesus as our guide on that journey. And quiet prayer or silence and solitude or the aremos or whatever you want to call it, that is the path by which we walk. As St. John of the Cross put it, our greatest need is to be silent before this great God. For the only language he hears is the silent language of love. This is the deepest form of prayer. I love reading liturgical prayers and I love reading spiritual reading. I love praying to God with my mind. I love listening to prayer and waiting on God for words and images and scriptures to come to mind. But the deepest form of prayer goes beyond thoughts, beyond words, beyond images because God is none of those things. He transcends them and it's just letting God love you and loving God in return. Relax, detach, look, listen, love. To end, we live in a world of noise, a culture of outrage, and a body of fear. The way of Jesus is over against all of that, a way of quiet, a way of love and compassion and of deep peace no matter what comes. All of us are on the journey. I am so not even like close to the end goal yet, but I'm on the way. And we travel that journey on the path of quiet prayer. My dream for the future church, as we think about our church in years to come, and the church at large, is, and I don't say this in a cynical way, 
at all. So please, please hear me with none of those overtones. I do dream of a future church that looks a little bit less like a rock concert. And I used to play in a rock band. I'm not down on that. And more and more like a haven for noise refugees. My friend Strawn, who's a singer-songwriter, some of you I'm sure follow his work, as well as a poet in New Zealand, recently a very prophetic kind of voice, and uh, we've been praying together about some future monastic kind of order stuff, and he gave me a prophetic word that he felt from the Spirit for kind of the church at large. Let me read part of it to you. In the days ahead, people will flock to the refuge of prayer communities, to the stillness and kindness of my presence. There will soon come a day when prayer will become protest and the silence of masses will be assigned against the madness of a vitriolic world. In a world saturated by the violence of words, my wordlessness will be my bride's greatest witness. Now you have to test that. That's not scripture, but that rings true to my spirit. One last thought. You know, not to sound morose, but I've been thinking the last few days about like, if I were to die, what would I really hope that you as a church would take away from just some of my time with you as one of the pastors? Um, yesterday, I spoke a few words at the memorial for um, Grant Fisher, some of you know, who died in a tragic car accident, 23 years old, four-month-old baby, kissed her goodbye, gave his wife a hug, got in his car, drove out, and somebody who was high driving 90 miles per hour smashed into him, died on the spot. And so for the last week, I was working on this teaching on silence and solitude, as well as working on a few words for the memorial yesterday. And it just got me thinking, not in a morose way at all, but in a healthy kind of way, like, like if that were to happen to me, because that could happen to any of us t today, tomorrow, on the way home from church. Like, what would I really hope that 20 years from now, if there's anything left of my annoying voice in your memory banks, like, what would I hope, and this is it, I, I would hope that you would hear me as a brother in your ear just saying, follow Jesus to the quiet and pray. I came across this quote from um, St. Elizabeth of the Trinity that I've been reading a little bit of recently. She's a French Carmelite, and... She, I read this quote, and I thought, I want this on my tombstone, so my love. I'll text this to you later, just in case. That's so morbid. I'm so sorry. She writes this. I think that in heaven, my mission will be to draw souls by helping them go out of themselves to cling to God by a holy, simple, and loving movement and to keep them in this great silence within that will allow God to communicate himself and transform them into himself. <laughs>